I've arrived at Kendall Mountain Festival 2022. It's Thursday night and we're processing. We've just been to base camp to get the festival kicked off. The mayor was there, the organisers were there, the holding was there, did a little speech opening the event. There were people playing bagpipes, which possibly you can hear. There were also people on stilts, which is less good material for a podcast. But we're processing up the hill. I believe lights are going to be switched on at the top of the hill to officially open the festival. My name's Emily Anderson and welcome to Unfinishing. This is the podcast all about projects that are unfinished, abandoned or not public. As any regulars will know, I normally have one guest per episode of Unfinishing and we talk about a project that they've never completed or that they've chosen to keep private. But this is a special episode because myself and a team of hardy helpers took the podcast on the road to Kendall Mountain Festival 2022. For anyone who hasn't been, the festival is a bit like the Edinburgh Fringe for the outdoor world. So thousands of visitors go to Kendall and Cumbria every year to experience films, speakers, books, art, brands and organisations that are all focused on the outdoors and on outdoor pursuits. I was really pleased to partner with Kendall this year, partly because it's great and partly because I had a sneaking suspicion that there would be plenty of festival contributors and visitors who had unfinished projects and who wouldn't mind telling me about them if I bribed them with flapjack. Luckily, that did turn out to be the case. I've collected some of the interviews together for this special episode to give you a flavour of the festival and of the extraordinary people who attend. If you yourself have an unfinished, abandoned or private project that you'd like to talk about, you can contact me via email on unfinishing.pod at gmail.com and you can follow me on my new Instagram account, which is at unfinishingpod, to get the latest episode. The first interview you'll hear in this special episode is with Steve Scott, who's director of Kendall Mountain Festival. As well as telling me about the history and future of the festival, it turns out that Steve has his own unfinished project. He has some really thoughtful ideas for a film, which touches on the physical and emotional aspects of outdoor adventure. Sorry, I was late. I was at the party last night. So like 3am. <laughs> Fine. I wasn't drunk or anything. It's all part of the late festival. Nights, yeah. <laughs> Okay, could I just get you to say who you are and what you do for Kendall? Yeah, good morning. My name is Steve Scott. I'm one of the directors of Kendall Mountain Festival. And could you explain what Kendall Mountain Festival is? Well, Kendall Mountain Festival is probably now the world's biggest gathering of venture filmmakers and speakers and creatives and, and the industry as well. So it's, it's a huge platform for multiple communities to come and share the adventure, share their stories and feed off the really exciting energy that this event creates. And if you had to describe it in three words, what would you say? Oh, that is very difficult. Infectious, positive and caring. 
Before we started recording, you mentioned that you've been working for Kendall for 20 years, I think you said. How has it changed over that period? Nearly 20 years. I started in 2004. And it's changed radically over the last five years with the sort of change in face of outdoor. You know, the more diverse communities that we're bringing into this this area. Just in scale and in creativity as well, the, dif- the diversity of content. Uh, it's so exciting to see proliferate. It's sort of an organic growth, but we've also designed that growth with a fantastic team that we've got. What's it like behind the scenes? I imagine it's a fairly hectic weekend for you and the other organisers. Yeah, it's sort of a family business. There's myself and my wife, Jackie, who's the chief exec, and then Clive is our other director, but our kids are all working here at the moment and busy. So, you know, it's, it feels like a big family, Kendall. And behind the scenes, I think there's a great film to be made on the making of the festival because inevitably there's a, such a small team of 12 people, but an incredible amount of work and creativity goes on to make this huge event happen. And is that the film that you mentioned before that was your potential unfinished project or is that a different film? That could be a very clever filmmaker to make a sort of fly in the wall thing. I think that would be cool. But my unfinished project actually, of so many, I'm sort of a self-taught graphic designer. So I had a design agency for many years. But through having watched thousands of films over the years, I've always wanted to direct a film, I guess. There's some, a film project that I've always wanted to make is about departure. And it's never happened, and I've written scripts or just loose notes, and I think it's something I've, I've really conceived in my head, and it's literally about the multifaceted style of leaving the earth in many ways. So if we look at a lot of the action sports, for example, there's a moment where a paraglider pilot leaves terra firma and, and is caught in suspension, and there's like a transitionary period of where they leave safety and go into a new sort of realm that humans weren't really designed to exist in. So flying in the sky, climbing up to cloud base, or a skier, a snowboarder taking off, and that moment they leave the Earth. And I think there's a sort of cinematic concept that I'd like to develop with that. But also, departure has a lot of other meanings within people leaving loved ones and going on expedition, and it's that sort of marriage of inherent risk and tearing yourself away from security and love and safety and I think there's a it's quite an emotive piece but also quite a creative piece to make and I just need to find someone when I've got a bit of time to sort of make it you know make it real make it happen and I assume that you're into outdoor activities yourself do you have any of your own departures that you're thinking of when you're thinking about that film yeah, I used to be my job. I mean, I was, I guess, what you call an adventure sports professional when I was younger. But so a lot of these sports I've done to quite a high level. So I can relate to a lot of them. But I think, I think the also the sort of meticulous approach that people at very high level have always has always fascinated me. The, the psychology, the process that's involved in preparing for that departure, and often it can be just things like getting your equipment ready the methodologies that people use it could be a ritual that some people have and I find that really interesting and I think over the years we've seen the quality of films improve massively but actually there's been very little exploration in in sort of the micro detail and the psychology and I'd really like to you know explore that. And over the years you must have seen and heard a lot of athletes, mountaineers, adventurers talking about those kinds of preparations that they do in advance of their activities. Yeah, I'm so lucky to have met 
so many of the world's great adventurers and storytellers and creatives in the outdoor genre and I think I've always been drawn by humans that's why I love interviewing people on stage and that's part of my job at the festival is also as a presenter um, you know I was chatting to Ray Mears on stage yesterday in front of 350 people in the audience and I was had to pinch myself you know because I followed him for so many years and read his books watched his TV programs and films and uh I'm just sat next to him and thinking, gosh, I had an out-of-body experience where I had to sort of pinch myself and bring myself back in the moment because like, I'm actually sat next to Ray Mears here. But the fact that he's consciously talking about the finer detail, the passion that he has for nature and how he connects to it and how he's learnt from First Nations people, Indigenous people, and I, I find that really intriguing when he analyses anything from a an animal track to looking at the texture of snow to looking at pine needles on a tree that indicates a temperature drop of 10 degrees or so and I find that really intriguing and you can't fast track to that sort of experience and learning in life and we meet so many of these amazing people whether they're free solo climbers or storytellers writers you know it's not just hardcore adventurers and you know people who are risking life and limb it's often people like Robert McFarlane who for me is one of the world's greatest writers and how they how they get to where they are and how they do what they do. And where would you like the festival to go in the future? Oh that is so tough. I I think it's growing really quickly. We have limitations in the small town that we're in from a sort of practical sense. Creatively we're all have our own little passion projects within the programme. I think the way it will expand is to reach out even more to a global audience, to take our touring model, if you like, the touring shows that we do, to more countries around the world. I mean, we're, we're on that journey now in North America, in China. Um, we're not really hitting Europe yet, but that will happen. New Zealand, Australia next year, hopefully. And then on the digital player, doing more digital projects, maybe even a podcast with certain podcasters like yourself I think the sort of collaborative thing is always really interesting to Kendall so yeah I think seeing the growth organically is is exciting but I think we also have to manage that sustainability if you like of the, so we don't tire the team out and we have to look after our mental health as well so, yeah it's easy to come up with the ideas but actually delivery is, is a completely different picture any highlights so far from this year oh gosh there are highlights. The, the thing, and I'm sure a lot of the team will tell you this, running the festival is the best job in the world. However, we don't get to see the festival really because we're all doing our own things and seeing like 10%, 15%, 20% of it, all the things we're presenting on stage. So therefore, my highlight has to be just observing the energy and the smiles. And I saw this morning there, were, there was an LGBTQ plus running group all arriving at base camp and then there were... There were people talking as I was walking past. Because sometimes I walk very discreetly. They can't see I'm the director wandering around. And it's really useful just listening to the feedback and the energy. And I think just seeing the, the increased level of participation this year and diversity across the festival. People from all walks of life, all races. And I've never seen that before. And, it, and it, for me, it shows that we're doing something correctly. It just makes me really proud of everybody that puts this, this event on, really. Well, thank you very much for talking to me. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. 
I'm about to talk to Jenny Tuff, who is an adventurer, endurance athlete, writer, filmmaker. And in 2021, she completed the extraordinary feat of running solo across mountain ranges on six continents. Jenny's film, Solo, is premiering at Kendall, and she's also written a book with the same name. Hello, Jenny Tuff. Welcome to Unfinishing. Hello. Thanks so much for having me. I feel bad that introduction was about something I finished. Why am I here? <laughs> you make a good point. And actually, I was delighted when I did get talking to you that you said that you were the queen of procrastination, I think was the phrase that you used. So I do want to get to your finished things. But could you tell me a little bit about how you're the queen of procrastination? Uh, well, I'm a writer. So that's my real job is being a writer. So creatives, I think we're amazing at workflow because if you do like normal factory style work, the hours put in reflect the outcome. Creatives, not really. Sometimes you're in flow and things are great. And then there are whole days where I stare at my laptop and it stares back at me. And when I got my book deal, I had about a year and a bit to write the whole book. And do you think I did that in the first couple of months? Oh, no. I finished my manuscript the day it was due. And how do you feel about having that kind of pressure if you're not great at doing things straight away? It's not the thing that I love about myself most, actually. Yeah, I keep on saying to myself, you know what, this is, this is the week that I'm not going to be a procrastinating person. Actually, a couple weeks ago, I spent an hour reading a very long essay on why people procrastinate and what's wrong with you if you're a procrastinator and how to fix it. And that was how I procrastinated that day. <laughs> I do want to talk to you a little bit about your film and your book and the project that that's based on. So could you describe Solo and what it's about? So my project was to run solo and unsupported across a mountain range on every continent. The shortest one, I think, was 11 days long, and the biggest ones were about 25 days long, completely alone in isolated wilderness, um, trying to cross a mountain range from its start to its end point. It's just an obsession that I have with, I like nice lines across nice maps, and I love mountains, so it was carrying all my own stuff, doing all the problem solving on the expeditions by myself, no support crew, no logistics. Yeah, so the film and the book are both about those journeys. There are six different mountain ranges and it took me five years to complete it. So it's not just about the, the actual running and the navigating, but also about the emotional journeys that I went on as a human and the lessons that I learned and the big things that happened to me out in the mountains and, and just trying to encourage other people to get into the idea of doing big solo challenges. And I do find it completely extraordinary, as I'm sure most people would, that you do this alone. And I think one of the things that I'm most impressed by is that you must be able to have moments of doubt, I imagine you do, but then also overcome them. Is that is that the case? Is that what happens? Yeah, big time. Um, and I still, I still to this day get intimidated by, even if I'm just going to go out for a 10K, I figure like, you know, I need to go for a training run today. I'm going to go for a 10K and then I go... Whoa can I run 10 kilometers? I don't know if I can. And I'm that person to myself all the time. I look at these big routes and think, I don't think I can do that. And then you do. And every time that you do something like that, you prove to yourself what you're capable of. And this is why I'm passionate about getting people to go take on these challenges is because a big background for me is having low self-esteem. I've always had low self-esteem. I really do struggle with confidence. I struggle with being in front of people. I struggle with saying to myself, I can go run a 10K this afternoon. So putting myself in these positions where I find out what I'm made of, I find out how strong I actually am and proving to myself that I was wrong about myself. I think so many of us can benefit from putting ourselves in those positions. So that's, yeah, that's a lot of what I get out of it. But man, I still struggle with confidence. I'm still not there. 
I was reading the foreword that you wrote to another book called Tough Women, which is a book of adventure stories by women. And in that, I can't remember where it was that you were, but you were telling a story about having made a bit of a navigational error and you were having to go up a mountainside. And I think you said that you promised yourself that you wouldn't be doing that kind of thing again. Do you have those kinds of moments a lot of the time or was that a real standout? It was a standout because it was really extreme in the moment and I wasn't resilient to it in the moment. I got really upset and I did quit. And I said to myself, I was trying to, at the time, trying to run across Kyrgyzstan. I was about halfway across and I quit. I said in the moment, I'm not doing this. Everyone that told me I shouldn't run across Kyrgyzstan because it's too hard. They were right. It's too hard. I'm not running across Kyrgyzstan anymore. So I quit. And I said the words, but I mean, I said the words while I was crawling up this mountainside, clinging on for dear life. If I made a mistake, I was going to die. It's not a time that you can quit because quitting is dying. So I couldn't quit. So I had to see it through. And I knew that when I got to the top of that mountain, if I survived it, I had about three days to get to the next road end where I could really actually quit and get back to Bishkek and fly home and be safe again. So quitting when you're in the back country is interesting because it's happened to me a lot. It's happened to me so many times on these adventures where I say, I'm not doing this anymore. It's too uncomfortable. It's too hard. It's too scary. I'm done. I'm going home. But you're in the back country. You don't have a choice. You're still going to have to keep moving for a couple more days in order to see through your quitting decision. And in those three days, something will probably happen. You will probably see a really nice sunrise or see a bird fly by or whatever it is. Or you'll have a snack and you'll get over the reasons why you're upset in the first place and decide to unquit. So all my quits have happened in really good places where I wasn't able to actually quit. You know, if there's a bus driving past, then you, then I might have actually quit a lot of times. You know, if I'd been in easier places to quit, I probably, I don't know if I would have made it across any of those mountain ranges, actually. And you said a little while ago that the challenges that you face are the kind of physical challenges and the navigational challenges and also the kind of emotional, personal challenges. Could you tell me a little bit about either of those two categories that you faced as you've been on your journey? I think mountains are an amazing place to have these metaphors for life because you've got the physical mountain, the hard, big, scary thing that you don't know if you're going to be able to get over. And there's steep bits, things that you can like there's these scary parts, but then there's also insane beauty. There's these huge rewards every time that you get a good view. There's the wildflowers, the nature, the sunrises. And these scary things and these beautiful things are living in harmony amongst each other. They're in quick succession. And that's the metaphors for life are, are just all around you. So I always think... If you're working through something personally, for me, a lot of it being confidence, being in literal mountains and having to work through your own emotional mountains at the same time, I always think it's just, that's just free therapy right there. It's amazing. And that's why I really love, I mean, I adore mountains for what they are, but then also they do give me those lessons and getting to, yeah, getting to put yourself in that very real environment while you're dealing with your emotional environment. Yeah. Free therapy. I've never thought of that phrase before, but that's it. That's what I'm going to tell people mountains are now. <laughs> And you said as well that you're keen to encourage other people to go outside, maybe go outside by themselves. It can be quite an intimidating thing to go outside by yourself, even if it's just you know a brief hike and nothing like the level that you do it at. Where would you say that people should start if that's something that they're interested in doing? It is a really intimidating thing. I would say start with knowing what your barriers are to that and your comfort zone. So for me, it's always been the night. I never liked doing overnight solos because I didn't like camping by myself. I didn't like being out by my head torch and not being able to see what was around me. So I identified that as my weakness. That was the reason why I couldn't run across a mountain range yet because I didn't want to be alone at night that many times. So 
I looked at that weakness. I looked at that fear and I explored it. What am I actually afraid of? And what are the ways that I can get around it? And so for different people, it's going to be different things. A lot of people, it's navigation. I have so many women come up to me and say they want to do these things, but they're scared that they'll mess up the navigation. So if you know what the thing is, what's your barrier? What's the reason why you're not doing it now? Then attack that thing. Say, well, what can I do about that? If it's navigation, learn navigation. Get yourself in a position where you're no longer afraid of it. And then you're going to be able to do those things. So find out what's going on with your comfort zone that you're not doing it. And then just make a really practical program to get yourself through that. And when was the first time you did a solo expedition? Can you remember? Have you been doing it for years or was it more recently? Yeah, I've been doing it for years. I mean, I was lucky enough to grow up in the Canadian Rockies, so I had a lot of experience in the outdoors. But I started, I think my first big one, I wouldn't call it an expedition because I was on the road, but I cycled from my hometown in Calgary to the Yukon, and it was like 3,000 kilometers along the Rocky Mountain chain. But I never rode a bike anywhere before. So actually, when you said 3,000 kilometers, I was like, I don't know, does that take four days or a year? I have no idea what 3,000 kilometers are, so I just all the money that I had on this bike that I didn't know how to ride or how to fix or anything like that and I just went and it was such a such a stupid thing to do because I had no idea what I was doing but then it was the best thing to do because I was this 21 year old idiot trying to start my adult life figure out who I was and what I was going to do and I put myself in this incredibly challenging environment where I had to figure my stuff out where I couldn't ask adults to help me when things went wrong where I really had to like find my own way and and really figure out who I was and it was I cried over something almost every day. Again, the quitting thing. I quit so many times, but if you're in northern Canada, there's no train station that you can go wheel your bike to and have your hissy fit. You're in northern Canada. There's no transport links. If your bicycle doesn't work, you have to fix it. Like, there's no other option. There's no other option. So it was it was a really amazing growth experience filled with crying. But, yeah, that was where I got my love for figuring out these solo things. And you recently appeared on Women's Hour to talk about your expedition, which was a brilliant interview and very much enjoyed it. And you were talking about some of the challenges that you faced, maybe from the less than favourable reactions that you got from people just because you were a woman and happened to be doing these things, which is a really important topic. But I also wanted to ask you about how you feel about almost being an ambassador now, I think, for women in the outdoors. You know what? I had this fantasy when I was younger that I thought when I've done my first big expeditions... And when I've turned 30, I thought that either of those two things, people are going to start talking to me in a different way. But once I've proven myself, you know, I've done three world's first expeditions. I've won multiple adventure races. Objectively, you know, I made it in this industry. I could stand on my own two feet and say I belong here on paper. And I'm over the age of 30. You know, in the adventure industry, people know who I am, maybe treat me differently. But if I go into an outdoor shop because I need to buy a new pair of socks, I'm going to get explained what socks are for. Like, you know, the way that we talk to women is ridiculous. Ridiculous, And yeah, that fantasy has burst. It, it's not happened. So now I have to attack the problem. I do love that women are, are finding courage from me. I do love that women who do this stuff and women who are more experienced than me and even older than me are getting their courage from hearing me go on the BBC radio and, and talk about it. As girls, you're always told to like not scream too loudly and cry about your feminist problems. But whatever, man, I'm going to keep screaming about them until all women feel completely comfortable going out into the outdoors world and doing things solo and not being explained how to tie their laces. I'm just going to keep on banging this drum. And you also spoke about how you find it quite challenging to return to the subject of finishing things, how you find it challenging when you have finished one of your journeys. Could you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, it's, it's something that I think I've always underestimated is how hard 
finishing is? Because you, when you're doing a really hard journey and one that takes weeks to finish, you spend all that time fantasizing about the finish line. And the finish line, in your mind going towards it, is this glorious place. It's where you're going to feel so good about yourself. It's where you're going to get yourself a glass of wine and a pizza and go celebrate and get clean again because you've been out in the wilderness for so long. And and it's such a good thing in your mind. And then you get to that finish line. And for me, that means leaving the mountains, leaving the outdoors and the silence and what I was going through and getting to a city, usually a transport hub is where you're going to finish because I have to fly back to Scotland or whatever. And it's completely different. And it's like being punched in the face with the world and the problems of it and the choices and it's just suddenly you're not in motion every day suddenly you're not outside every day and this project that you gave so much of your love and energy to for months is now gone and that thing that you were really focusing on you don't have that focus anymore and I always think it's like hitting a brick wall it's getting slammed into a brick wall when you finish an expedition it's never as nice as you imagine it and it's been a real learning curve to figure out how to do recovery. And when people ask me about recovery, I've been on so many interviews where they go, so, like, what do you do? Do you do some yoga, go into cold baths? Like, what do you do about your legs when you recover? I'm like, my legs will, will come back. They're fine. If, as long as I take care of them, my legs will come back. But it's my brain that needs recovery. And that's what I've had to learn is how to be gentle with myself, how to get excited about something else in the future and you know, not go into those post-adventure blues, which are just waiting for you when you finish an expedition. And is being an adventurer, if I can call you that, if that works, sure. <laughs> is that really, really wrapped up with your identity? Or rather, what struck me there when you were talking is, it reminds me of post-Olympic blues. I've heard athletes talk about that and how sometimes that's about being the athlete is so wrapped up with their identity that it's really difficult when the Olympics has stopped and they think, well, what do I do now? Is that something that you sympathize with? Yeah, definitely. If I haven't done something big in a while or I haven't been out, I I do get really freaked out that maybe I've lost my identity or I won't. You know, I'm coming to Kendall this week. Am I going to have anything to talk about? Because I didn't do a race this year. I've got, you know, nothing to my name in the last 12 months. And that is really hard. So I totally do empathize with that. It's a huge part of my identity. And like those athletes, it's amazing to lump myself into understanding them. It's not just my passion and the thing that I love doing and the thing that I would give all my time and energy to. It's also my career. So it's that double whammy of it has to work because not only do I get myself worth and feel like all the good things in my life come out of it, but also my bank account depends on me doing that. So, yeah, you you put all your eggs in a basket when you turn your your life hobby, your passion, whatever, into fully who you are, your actual job. And you're also a writer. And I'm curious to ask, did the writing come first? Did the traveling and adventure come first or were they hand in hand? The writing came first. Yeah, I'd always had a fantasy that I could be a writer. But I mean, when you're in school, I was actually I was speaking to some school kids in a creative writing class this week that a teacher asked me to come in and, and convince them to take a career in writing. And I was like, what? No one tells people to be writers. I was always told that that is the starving artist. They're the worst paid. It's the worst job. Everyone wants to be a writer and no one gets paid to do it. Don't be a writer was definitely the messaging I got from the universe. So I always had this fantasy of being a writer. But in that fantasy, you live in a shed because that's what you can afford. So, um, yeah, I was always writing just in my own time and it would just write blogs or whatever it was and just like it was just a fun pursuit. I didn't know it could be a job. I didn't know I'd actually make it as a writer. So that was pretty cool. And when you are out and about on your adventures, are you thinking, oh, I could write this up as a story? Is, is it generative of ideas at the same time? Yeah, it's interesting because 
obviously you have to be able to make these things pay for themselves and that's how they pay for themselves is that you tell a story at the end you know maybe a brand is invested in you because you're going to come back and be able to give a talk or write an article so you have to be able to do that but if you go out there already trying to frame that and already trying to look for something I think it's so much harder to find it and I you know these adventures I'm not doing them on a professional level I'm doing them because I it was really meaningful for me to go out there and do that thing and I do get these big life lessons from them but you can't force that process you have to yeah, you have to go out there and experience the world. You know, I'm here because I love traveling. So I try to go in there with a completely open heart and open mind. But towards the end of a trip, you start saying, as soon as I go back and my out-of-office reply and my emails is gone, there's going to be an expectation that I can deliver something. So if something big hasn't happened yet, you go, oh, shit, oh, shit. But something big always happens. You always do have a million things that you could write about. Yeah, so it is, it's in the back of my mind, but in the front of my mind is experience the thing and just be completely open to the thing and not think about the media world being for you. Can you ever imagine a moment where you're doing one of your journeys and you think, this is the last one now, I'm going to stop after this and do something else? No, no. <laughs> I thought you might say that. Yeah, no. <laughs> no, that's very uncomfortable, no. <laughs> and if people want to find out more about you and your stories, where can they find you? mainly social media jenny tuff is my handle everywhere or jennytuff.com is my website beautiful thank you very much for talking to me thanks so much for having me this is really fun friday afternoon at kendall mount festival and i've headed down to base camp to have a chat to some of the businesses that are here some of the organizations that are here and of course to find any visitors who might have unfinished projects of their own hopefully we have a lot of those to talk to So my name's Charlie Smith and I am a designer and I do cold weather expeditions in winter. And I'm at Kendall because it is the place to be for the outdoor industry uh, every year. I've been coming here since I was 18. And I believe you have an ongoing project. Yeah, um, an ongoing project. It's, uh, I've, been, I've been trying to do this trip for the last eight years, um, trying to cross Iceland in the middle of winter from the very north to the very south. And it has escaped me for various reasons. First and foremost, because it's just really difficult. And again, so actually the, the very first idea for that trip, or at least the first conversations we had about it, was at Kendall when I was about 17. So it's genuinely been part of my story as long as Kendall has. And it's, it's a trip that is a big part of my life. And I'm going to say it's going to be finished at some point, but it's, yeah, it's an un unfinished project from now. And when you say you're trying to cross it, how are you traveling across so it's in the middle of winter, so it's pitch black. The temperature goes from minus 20 to plus 10. You get rain, sleet, snow, you get everything. And a lot of the time it's on skis, so it's like touring skis. Um, we can't use Nordic skis because you've got so many mountains in the way, of up and down, and river crossings, and just the landscape's very varied. And Nordic skis kind of lends itself to more like Antarctica, where it's kind of flat and consistent. Iceland's not that. And so we're using touring skis, which are plastic boots. So the feeling that you get after you've been skiing and like resorts and you having to walk down the hill from the from the ski lift that's what we were in basically the entire time um it's painful and cold quite a lot of the time which is kind of a theme for most of the trips you hear about a kendall i think and how much experience of skiing did you have before you started the journey i'm not going to come out and say that i was born on skis like a norwegian because i really wasn't i started learning skiing when i was two or three it's like just before you're allowed to start learning to ski and uh, basically went back every year since um, multiple times and was fortunate enough to, 
to get quite good. But then ski touring was quite new to me before the trip as well. And that was one of the things that I kind of identified as something I need to get really good at before I started the trip. And so specifically went out to go and get more experience uh, ski touring. And it's a very different type of skiing to, to resort skiing. And it sounds like the main challenge you face in this trip is the weather, the conditions. Is that right? Yeah, the weather and the conditions are definitely the, the first and foremost challenge of, of that trip. And I mean, the daylight's difficult I and mean, you only get four or five hours of usable daylight. But at least with those four or five hours, you can kind of time that to be the difficult part. So if there's a river crossing or if there's a gully or if there's a certain section of, of the route that's really tricky, you kind of time that part of the route to be during the daylight hours. But headlamps are amazing nowadays and you can genuinely get some really good light from, from headlamps. You kind of develop systems to try and get over those sort of problems so battery tech uh, headlight tech you can develop methods to, to to mitigate those but you can't mitigate against a massive storm which is minus 20 historically strong winds you've just got to know what to do in those scenarios and as counterintuitive as it sounds sometimes the best thing is to just keep skiing because if you're in an area where there's no real danger and you know that from where you are now to 10 kilometers ahead of you and there's a big storm coming the storm's not really going to lift you up off the skis but it might break your tent so you might be better off just skiing ahead and just pushing through the storm which is kind of a decision that you have to make on the fly and it makes you regret everything you're doing at the moment because you're thinking well i've got at least three more hours of this until the storm passes and yeah those moments are are really challenging but the biggest challenge we've had honestly is mentality so a lot of people say that when you're in a blizzard, you can look, put your hand in front of your face and you can't even see your hand. And a lot of it's exaggeration, but I, I genuinely mean that there's, there's fog and, and humidity there that means that you genuinely cannot see the hand in front of your face, which means that you don't get to even see your teammates all day. All you see is a little like red flashing bicycle light in the background of their pole. That sort of moment is challenging because it just makes you feel so isolated and alone. And those moments compounded with storms and just the, the general magnitude of where you are is, is difficult. And when you have those moments, do you have certain things that you do to overcome it? Or is it just a case that you have no choice but to carry on? Uh, two things. One is that you realize every step you take forward is a step that you're near the end. And luckily, it's a really defined journey. I know exactly, almost exactly how many steps it needs to take to get from one place to the next, because I've tried it three or four times now. And I've done training in, in, in the country as well. And so I kind of know what the end goal is to a really accurate level. But then on the other side, music is really amazing. There's, there's, there's so many songs that I can play on a playlist. That I, I think I've, I've genuinely got like playlists of one, two, three, every attempt that we've gone back and whatnot and, and given it a go. And each time the playlist has changed slightly. And sometimes it's like really epic classical music. And sometimes it's just really cheesy 80s music. But I think that really does help because it immediately makes you feel out of place. It makes you feel like you're at home. Or if there's a song that reminds you of family or a song that reminds you of friends, and just playing that through some headphones, being mindful of the battery is really, really cathartic. But there's also something really genuine about being in a massive storm in the Arctic that feels so different in everyday life that you kind of feel quite primal, quite alive, and quite gives you some sort of energy from your surroundings, which is incredible, but equally challenging. But I think it's incredible because it's challenging in a sense. Like there's, a, there's a fine line there, I think. And this project, has it been going on for eight years, did you say? Yeah, so I um, started this project when I was... Uh, the idea for the project came when I was 17 um, and then started it in, in earnest when I was 18. I was the youngest of the team that, that gave it a go. And uh, we've gone back twice properly. But since then, we've had issues where we've flown out and there hasn't been enough snow. And then 
the subsequent year I tracked the weather down to the temperature degree every three hours and I'm not very good at scripting so I genuinely went onto the weather forecast looked at the weather forecast for the day and then filled that information into an excel spreadsheet manually for like a month beforehand just to make sure there was enough snow and it's been a really long haul and I'd love to be standing here saying that it's done but it's not luckily or not luckily but that project is a massive part of my growing up in a sense it's a coming of age story for me now and it's been it's been a really big part of my life in a sense do you feel as though it's changed you as a person or is there anything in particular that you've learned from doing it i think it's humbled me massively i think anything like that on a failure of that scale is hugely impactful and i think i'd be really daft to say that it hasn't changed me I think I'd leave it up to people around me to say how much has changed me or what it's changed me like. But all, I've, I've made friends for life in Iceland. I've got really good stories to tell with people out there and people here. And those are stories that I wouldn't have had otherwise. And luckily, no one was hurt. No one was... We were pretty preventative throughout the whole saga. So, yeah, it's changed me, but it's equally made me more aware of what the real like value of these trips are. And it's not about the socials. It's not about that. It's about... The stories you can tell and the people that you meet along the way as cheesy as that sounds and you mentioned your teammates who is it that you're doing it with so i started off with a team of four um, and i'll leave them unnamed but um then it went down to a team of two we tried that and that didn't exactly go to plan and so now it's uh now it's it's mainly me pushing they're all incredible guys and really close friends to me and i i love them for the fact that they were involved with me for the sections that they were it's been a really nice moment for all four of us every now and then when we get to see each other and just talk about everything and how do you imagine you'll feel when it is finished? I haven't even thought about it. I really haven't. It's just been such a big part of an ongoing story that I've never really thought about the ending. Yeah, that's a really good question. I don't know. Come back to me. Sure, sure. And if people want to find out more about what you're doing, do you have a website or an Instagram following or something like that where people can find you? Yeah, I check out the Instagram. I think it might be tagged into the bottom of this and, uh, and kind of go from there, really. Fantastic. Thank you very much for talking to me. Thank you. Was there anything else you wanted to cover? Or is that Okay, and I think we're recording. Looks like we are. Um, okay, great. Could I just get you to say a little bit about yourself, introduce yourself, say who you are um, and what you're doing in Kendall this year? Hi, I'm Siobhan Daniels. I'm 63 years old. I'm a self-proclaimed retirement rebel. And basically, I retired after working 30 years at the BBC, got rid of my home, all my possessions, bought myself a motorhome and hit the road three and a half years ago to champion positive ageing and challenge ageism. And I'm here to talk about my book that I've subsequently written called Retirement Rebel and just to promote positive ageing and pro-ageing. That sounds fantastic. So tell me, first of all, so you've had your motorhome for three and a half years. Whereabouts have you been so far? Gosh, where haven't I been in the, the, the British Isles now? I'm thoroughly enjoying exploring Great Britain and seeing what's on my doorstep. So I've been to Kent and Sussex and Yorkshire. I started off in Yorkshire because I'm originally from Leeds. And the Lake District, I've been explored Scotland. Earlier this year, I was in the Outer Hebrides. That was a dream come true for me because I've always wanted to explore the, the Outer Hebrides. And it was just beautiful, absolutely beautiful. And in July, I spent the whole month exploring Ireland and again that was mind-blowingly beautiful I can't wait to go back there but there's still an awful lot for me to see and when you say exploring is that hiking that you do I do a lot of everything really I I, I 
look at the map, think, where haven't I been? Where do I want to go? And my plan is to have no plan and go with the flow. And that's really what I've been doing for the last three and a half years. And if there's a hill to climb, I'll climb the hill. If there's a river to swim in, I'll swim in the river. I do a lot of cold water swimming in the sea. When I was in the Outer Hebrides in March, I was swimming in the Atlantic and thoroughly enjoying it. And did you do outdoor activity like that before you retired? Or is it a new thing you've been doing since you retired? I've done a lot more since I've retired, but on and off I've done it throughout my life. When I was a lot younger, I went trekking in the Himalayas in Nepal. And then again, I revisited being energetic in my 50s. I ran two marathons, one when I was 53 and one when I was 55, the Brighton one and the London one. I've climbed the three Yorkshire peaks in a day with family and friends. And I've climbed Mount Malangi when I was 59, the highest mountain in Malawi. So I suppose I, I have done some energy things but I'm doing a lot more now because I've got the time to do it. And that brings us a little bit to what you were saying your mission was which is to do with positive aging. Could you tell me a little bit more about that? Yeah I think as a society we've got a big downer on getting old. Everything is anti-aging, it's all negative, the narratives around aging are, are, are negative and I'm trying to turn it on its head and get younger women not to fear getting old, stop accepting that the they tap into your insecurities and everything's anti-aging cream get pro-aging creams you want to look the best you can you want to feel the best you can and you need to start changing policies now because society isn't geared up to treat women properly I don't think as they age and I think you'll be the older people of the future so you need to start getting policies and legislation in place because women get disenchanted in their mid-50s 60s and often leave work when they can't afford to because they don't get the pension till they're 70 so things need to change so your generation need to change it so I want you not to fear getting old but likewise a lot of women lose themselves in their mid-50s 60s when their children have grown up they're probably having a difficult time with the menopause they're looking after elderly relatives they've got bereavements in the family they may be feeling marginalized and voiceless in the workplace and I'm saying to them I was in that place I was broken in my mid-50s now at 63 I'm the happiest find that little light reignite those little adventures those things that helped you age positively so would you say that you prefer being the age that you are now to any other age that you've been before? No, I would say I just enjoy living. I enjoy waking up every morning and seizing every day because for me, getting old is a privilege. My sister died at 53. My brother died at 53. My father died at 50. And to me, getting old is a privilege. So I'm enjoying every day and every stage of my life. Every stage of my life has been, I've learned so much and I've learned from my mistakes. And now in my 60s, like I say, I really am the happiest. I've found my... My inner warrior, my inner voice, I'm the mistress of my own destiny and I just feel so reinvigorated. And if I can inspire any other woman and help anybody to feel like I do, and I've got my dodgy knee and I've got my ailments, I'm not fit as a fiddle, you know, I, I, and I have my fears and I self-limit like any other women, but I push myself through those and I hope my enthusiasm and my, my joy of life will encourage other women to just be the same. And would you say that what you're doing in your motorhome and in the outdoors is a particularly good way of being pro-age? Well, what I wanted to do was get rid of all my possessions to show that at the moment 
a lot of people are bogged down with going out to earn a lot of money to buy loads of stuff to fill the houses and say hey aren't we good but actually they're really miserable they're not enjoying life so I in my motorhome what I wanted to do was get rid of everything live a simpler life a less cluttered life and see if that would bring me the joy and and, and the feeling that I'm actually living and living in the moment and it has so I can only speak for me and say to other people maybe concentrate less on all this stuff concentrate more on the experiences and friends and family and being in the moment and maybe you'll get more joy out of life and I think thinking of the people that I know who are kind of retired I wonder if it might be quite an intimidating thing to do to start getting out there and start living that way would you have any words of advice to those people who are maybe a little bit nervous about doing that Oh, yeah, I totally understand them being nervous. I was nervous. I was scared. When I turned the key in the ignition in September 2019 and headed off in my motorhome, I was tearful, goosebumpy and tearful, you know, thinking, what the heck are you doing? Where are you going? And I really didn't know, but I had this overwhelming belief that somehow it would work out. And it is working out. I've got my book, Retirement Rebel, here in the bookshop, and it's selling, and it's selling well, and people want to hear me talk. And and, and women are resonating with what I'm doing. So you know anybody who's nervous just even a little lifestyle change just things that bring you that joy that happiness it doesn't have to be being as crazy as me and getting rid of everything and hitting the road one thing that I'm doing now that I used to do a lot when I was a child is lying down on the grass and just looking up at the clouds and losing myself in the moment for 15-20 minutes and feeling just joy and peace and calmness and I stopped doing that for over 50 years and I think why did I stop doing it you're not too old to do it and you're never too old and that's what I'm saying to him you are never too old just little lifestyle changes tweak things but just reignite those little sparks that made you feel happy and that will help you and then each time you're fearful and you overcome that fear you'll push yourself a little bit more and I'd love to hear as well about the process you went through of writing your book Retirement Rebel did that come naturally to you I know that you said you were a journalist before you retired or was that quite a big challenge it was a very big challenge. I was a broadcast journalist, so I worked for radio and for television. I wasn't writing so much. And so I think it all happened very, very quickly. I, I happened to be picked up by a journalist who wrote a column about me in The Guardian. 900,000 people read that online in the first week. It was about starting life over 60. So there was a hunger out there from people to hear my story, I felt. And then I got pitched it out to people got accepted by vertebrate publishing thankfully so it all happened really quickly but i had such great support from vertebrate publishing every week i'd have zoom calls they'd tell me what i was doing right and doing wrong and they guided me through the process of writing it but you know what the difficult thing isn't just the writing it. it's once it's out there it came out on the 20th of october there's so much promoting to do and 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 telling everybody the book is there please go out and buy it buy it for christmas presents stocking fillers and i'm sick of of promoting it some days but I, I just want people to get the message I'm so proud of the book and the reviews so far on Amazon are very supportive of it people are loving it and this is a podcast all about things that aren't finished yet and you're still I believe in the process of traveling around in your motorhome how much longer do you think that you're likely to be doing that? Is it a forever thing? Is it another few years thing? Again, I'm just going with the flow. And whilst it feels good and whilst I'm enjoying the experience and also whilst I'm physically able to do it, clambering in and out of the motorhome, filling the water, all the logistics of that, climbing up the hills that I see out the window every day, I'll keep doing it. But 
there is unfinished business for me. I think I'm going to venture into Europe next. I'm not sure, but I kind of think that's a fear for me. So maybe I need to push myself a bit more and push my boundaries um, and go exploring a bit further afield. And you're speaking later today at Kendall Mountain Festival. Sunday. Sunday. Yeah. <laughs> is this your first festival? Yes, yeah, the first time I've been here. And isn't it amazing? I am loving it. And it's great for networking and people are so supportive. And I went into the TP bookshop today and literally as I walked in, a lady was buying my book and I wasn't, I just squealed with delight. And I was, oh my goodness, that's my book, that's my book. And she got me to sign it and everything. And I was just so thrilled with the support that I'm getting from people and the way everybody else is supporting everybody else and also the adventure people are all ages there's young and old and mixing and that's what I like okay so if anyone wants to find out more about your project where can they follow you I've got my website which is siobhonshavoff.co.uk that's s-h-u-v-o-n-s-h-u-v-o-f-f and I'm on Instagram under siobhonshavoff so please follow me and message me contact me if you've got any queries but buy my book for your Christmas present stocking fillers Fantastic. Thank you very much for talking to me. It's been my pleasure. I've loved it. Yes, uh, my name is Andy Dodd. I'm a director at Climbers Against Cancer, or a trustee, and yeah, up here just supporting the event. And could you tell me a little bit about Climbers Against Cancer? Yeah, Climbers Against Cancer is a charity uh, that was set up by a guy called John Ellison about 10 years ago or so, uh, just coming up to 10 years. He unfortunately was diagnosed with cancer, sadly passed away a few years later, but set up the charity, realised how much the community was, was giving back um, and how much it was supporting him and would support other people that were in a similar situation. Yeah, that's, that's how the charity was sort of born um, and it's just been supported year on year, getting bigger and bigger and we've been giving lump sum donations to small research centres around the world ever since. So coming up to our 10th birthday next year, we're hoping to do something a little bit bigger. But yeah, just continued and, and growing and the com- support from the community is just incredible. Are you a climber yourself? So I'd love to say that I'm a yeah, regular climber. Um, it's sort of come and gone throughout the years, but there's always been, like I said, the, the community is always there. Like whether you rock up at a wall that you've never been to before, um, you can sit and work a problem. You can watch a few people. You can like, sometimes you don't quite get those problems like finished. Maybe maybe you don't visit that wall very regularly and they've changed it. But everyone's there to help out. Um, and that support is, is just yeah is, is shown through. Not climbing so much at the moment. Uh, more cycling and running but I know that climbing's always there it's a regular thing you can pop up anywhere and, and have a go and do you think that the fact that there is such a great community in climbing makes it particularly well suited for something like charity work or charity organizations yeah absolutely as I said the, the the support there is is incredible and whether it's like you're working a first problem um, whether it's your first go climbing and you, you yeah you don't know how big shoes they should be or yeah whether you should be getting the chalk ball out and, and patting it on your hand or what even to do with chalk and what, what that white powder is versus yeah climbing some I don't know v8 v9 v10 or whatever that grade is um, everyone's there so supportive of what you're doing and I think it just totally removes any barriers um, that you might have in sort of elitism so I think the support network there is is just general and genuine uh, and just migrating that to yeah to charity work um, yeah like I said we've seen it so much that people are just willing to give and and the likes of students that have no money um, are more than happy to to spend their sort of monthly food budget on on a whole load of cat clothing and hats instead. And how did you first get involved with Climbers Against Cancer? Uh, I first got involved probably five or six years ago or maybe even seven years ago at a climbing event I was at a, a wall in Worcester 
and Redpoint and in Climbs Against Cancer were there. Got chatting to Helen, who's the only paid member of staff. And yeah, just um, we had a sort of a common interest. She was wanting to buy a van. Um, I had a van um, that I converted and or, or partly converted. And um, yeah, she got really interested. So we continued talking and then sort of a, an opening came up for someone to start volunteering and um, to go around to other climbing events. And from there, I, I just immediately jumped on and said, yes, like absolutely, um, like no real connection. Unfortunately, I don't have too many or uh, any really family members um, or too many close friends that are affected by cancer, which is, I think, quite rare now. So I, I just, yeah, seen the support of the, the climbing community and was like, yes, I'll, I'll help out. Um, and now, now in the last few months, I've just become a trustee director and um, had a bit of change around and I just sort of re-inject a bit of life back into it and, and do something different for the next 10 years, hopefully. And any highlights from Kendall Mountain Festival so far this year? So far this year, just the interactions with, with so many people. It's always nice seeing, yeah, the community, seeing people that we see every year, people that buy their T-shirt every year and, and, and come, and, and that's their one thing they do definitely at Kendall. But also so many new people. It's sort of become quite clear that we've, we, we need to branch out a little bit more into like hill walking as well. So trying to capture a slightly wider audience um, in order to grow the charity or to continue the charity in a slightly different way. So, yeah, just those interactions, whether they're like a repeat interaction or a new interaction, um, it's just amazing. And, and that goes with like other big brands as well and, and the way they support us. So, like I said, it's just the support, the community is just incredible. And if people want to get involved, what should they look for? Uh, look for the logo. If you go to a local climbing wall um, and you see the logo, or if you don't see the logo, then get the climbing wall to put the logo there somewhere. Um, we have a whole load of QR codes as well, which can give donations. But yeah, hopefully, hopefully the logo stands out enough. Um, that was John's, John's design work. I think a lot of people recognise it. So look out for the logo. Um, look out for us on stands at climbing events on whatever scale, whether it's a local bouldering competition or the sort of international federation, like World Cups and that sort of thing. We're, we'll try and be at them all. Thank you very much for telling me about it. No problem. Thank you very much. Uh, I'm, my name's Amy Hogg and I came to Kendall because I want to be an outdoor instructor and I'm already a rock climbing instructor in Glasgow in Scotland and I've kind of went head first into the outdoor industry and just started doing everything at once like completely got obsessed with mountaineering, rock climbing, ice climbing, all sorts and um, I've actually been trying to get a job with Plassey Brennan and I went to the TP and I've been kind of like making friends with them and they know me on a first name basis now so yeah I'm just here to meet cool people and see what it's all about. That sounds like it's going pretty well to me. <laughs> and you said to me just now when I accosted you at a coffee stand that you have lots of unfinished projects. Are there any you can think of off the top of your head? Um, so like just in terms of like day to day, I start things and don't finish them all. I've, I've got ADHD, so I'm very good at starting things and generally either forgetting about them or just not quite getting around to finishing it um, but bigger scale like rock climbing climbs that I wanted to do and just I've always got like made a training plan like planned out how I'm getting there and midway through trying to achieve it I'll get distracted by the next project that I want to do and I'll start doing it as well and as much as I get them finished it's not maybe the best way of going about it yeah and how do you feel about things if you don't finish them are you kind of okay with that and you move on or do you get guilt? I always go back and finish them. I always like make sure, even if it's like 
in a huge roundabout way. I I can't. I don't like doing. I don't like not finishing things. So no, not very good. <laughs> and you said that you're an instructor. Yeah. And do you try and kind of pass that determination to finish on to the people who you're instructing? Yeah, as, as much as I can preach for other people to do it, I'm not very good at actually practicing it myself. With things like climbing, though, I I got so obsessed with it very quickly, and I can't not I can't not pursue that. Like I can't I can't be distracted by anything else other than that. But different projects within projects seem to just overwhelm me. There's so many things I want to do, but yeah, I like trying to psych people up and make get them to achieve all their goals and stuff. Yeah, it's pretty cool. And do you have any tips for that kind of determination? I don't know. I think some some people, a lot of my friends say that I give them it because I'm just that psyched all the time. It's like, especially in an environment where people are maybe not feeling great about it, I'm the one that's just like, okay, cool, I need to act now. But sometimes when I'm in amongst a lot of people who are really, really determined, I kind of start to lose the psych a little bit because I'm not having to lift other people up. I like instructing because I'm always like trying to push people to see what they can achieve pretty much even if they don't know what it is yet it's good I love it so you, you haven't been climbing very long is the impression I'm getting a year and a half and I just um, I started climbing myself um, I went with a few friends and then I kind of went a lot alone and then I asked for a job there and they gave me one and now here I am a rock climbing instructor and what is it about climbing that really hooked you in it's just everywhere. It's like the starting at the bottom of somewhere and being able to get to the summit. Um, like I've always done a lot of mountaineering and hill walking, but just new routes, like going in places that no one else can go, challenging yourself, and you see the results for the training you put in because you can push that little bit of grade higher and stuff like that. It's just, it's just endless. I can, I can never reach the top. So it's a perfect sport for me because I'm always like, what's what can I do next? What can I do next? And it's something that I can just never get to the top of. Well, it feels like I can never get to. It's like I'm always chasing a goal. It's amazing. That's all. And if people wanted to get in touch with you, do you have a website or social media that you'd like people to use? I have social media, which is Amy under dash hog um, on Instagram, but that's all. I don't really, I don't really do much anymore. But watch this space because I'm trying to get up there in that Georgie world. But um, I'm not very many people know who I am. Maybe they will in the future. I would imagine they would. <laughs> Thank you very much for talking to me. Thank you. Thanks for asking me. Uh, hello, my name's Colin Payne, and the project I've been doing is I've been cycling all the way around the coast of the UK on my own with my tent for the last four years. Four years, wow. And where did you start and how far have you got so far? I started in Lincoln, which is where I'm from, and then I went east, and then I've gone to the coast, all the way up to John O'Groats, all the way across the top, all the way down through Wales, Devon, Cornwall, Land's End, across, and I've stopped at Southampton. Fantastic. So how much further have you got to go? So I've got, um, I stopped at Southampton because it was the Queen's funeral, which messed things up. And so I've then got to go Southampton, Sussex, Kent, back into London, and then I'm done. So the chunk of it, the main chunk is done already. Great. And have you had any challenges along the way so far? Challenges, I've had a fair bit of bad weather, punctures, broken bikes and things like that. 
But otherwise, no, the challenge I've re- um, the challenges have been more mental challenges in that when it's hard and I'm tired and I'm not sure if I can make it and I'm walking up yet another hill. But I have always made it and feel really proud of how much I've achieved. Rightly so. Um, do you have any tips or advice on how to overcome those kinds of mental challenges for anyone doing something similar? Just don't give up. Even at the worst moment, it's not that bad and you can do it just one step in front of the other. And I've got to ask, what made you want to do it in the first place? I read a book, One Man and His Bike, where he set off from London and if he kept the coast on the right-hand side, he would eventually get back. And I thought, oh, that's a good idea, I'll do that. And I wanted to do it, I didn't want it to take as long as this, but I have had, uh, you know, all the pandemic, which has stopped things. And I just thought that'd be a great achievement. It, I'm not setting any records, I'm going at whatever speed I like and just enjoying it. I met loads of nice people and had a great time. Thank you very much for telling me about it. Thank you very much. I don't normally do outros on unfinishing. I did consider at one point having some kind of regular closing catchphrase, like many great things are left unfinished, but sadly this episode must be completed. But it just felt a bit too cheesy. (laughs) That being said, I did want to come back at the end of this episode, since it's a special episode, and say goodbye. I was out for a walk in my local park. That seemed like a good moment. I wanted to say what an absolute whirlwind of fun it was to take unfinishing to Kendall. I had a great time running around, chatting to people, handing out merchandise, finding out who had unfinished projects, and of course, actually getting the interviews done. I also wanted to say a huge thank you to the team of unfinishing helpers who I took with me. I absolutely could not have put this together without them. And of course, another big thank you to the Kendall Mountain Festival team, for partnering with me and for all the work they did in the background to make the interviews happen and to put this together. Thank you too to my guests, who in several cases did cope with me pointing a microphone at them in the cold, in their face, sometimes when they were trying to buy a coffee, with all sorts of noise going on in the background, as you could probably hear from the episode itself. And thanks to you as well for listening, right to the end too. You're the most special listeners. And I really do appreciate it. And you never know, you might like previous episodes as well. So feel free to subscribe and to have a flick through the back catalogue. There are more interviews on there with outdoorsy types, like Anna Fleming, for example, who's a rock climber and author of Time on Rock. But also people from lots of other areas as well. So, for example, I've got poets, musicians, artists, academics, TV writers, even a comedian a veritable plethora of different guests. 